Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. We have a busy show today. Uh, we address a number of issues, including vaccinating the 5 to 11-year-olds in the United States. That's already begun. More fallout and reaction to Gary Bettman talking on Monday. Tuesday was Kevin Shevel Deos Day to talk about the Chicago Blackhawks sexual abuse scandal, of which he's essentially been exonerated. No punishment whatsoever from either the Jets or the league for uh, that team's only ever president. And we started the show talking about the St. Mike sexual assault. It's a tough topic. I won't lie about that. But a lot of people had harsh reactions to three months probation for all five guilty perpetrators, as the courts found, in a criminal proceeding. And we contrast that with a 22-year-old Las Vegas Raiders player whose professional life might be over, including a long-term prison sentence for a vehicular homicide in which it appears he'd been drinking. Now, there's a big difference between what he gets for that for something he didn't intend to do, albeit it's his own actions and accountability, versus 17- and 18-year-olds that knew exactly what they were doing when they did it. So it's a hard one. I know it is. Uh, but we talked about it and had some great calls on it as well uh, with lots of raw emotion. So that's the Toronto Today podcast, and it begins now. This will be a heavy story, so let me warn you about that. But I do want your reaction to it because I think it needs answers. Every single time... An election comes around, I think to myself, we need to get on top of our criminal justice system. The best compliment people can pay to me about being on the radio um, is, is well, you know, you do your stuff. It sounds like you're you're doing research. You pre- present the topics. I don't always agree with you, but I appreciate your perspective. You try and balance both sides of it. And it's true. I'm no, you know, I'm no former politician. I don't owe debts. I don't, you know, run in political circles. I don't have buddies I've got to play golf with and, that I have to make happy. OK, I don't have that. So. The best compliment I get paid is, is that you play it up the middle. But when it comes, let me, let me not play it up the middle here for crime and punishment. I probably lean significantly to, we need stiffer sentences for terrible crimes. And it's not lost on me that a week ago tonight, a lot of people were awakened as opposed to woke, but they were awakened to something happening in the NHL with the uh, former number one draft pick for the Blackhawks, 11th overall in 2008, Kyle Beach. And he did that interview. And we talked about seeing something and saying something and making people accountable. But it's not lost on me. There's an element of hypocrisy when it comes to what happened at St. Michael's College School three years ago. The final legal scenario, at least from a criminal proceeding, took place yesterday. A fifth team involved and found guilty of what I can what I will I will spare you the graphic details of it. But it was a gang sexual assault with a weapon involved. This happened in November of 2018. So we're coming up on three years. That teen got two years probation. The same sentence all the other perpetrators got. And I want to ask you at 416-870-6400, is this justice, the St. Mike's verdict? How do you feel when you hear that that's the scenario? Three months probation. You tell me what should have happened. And I heard from two St. Mike's alumni yesterday. I heard from several, but I want to document what they wrote to me. Uh, Andrew's a gentleman that wrote to me, and here's what he said. I did things, and he's a St. Mike's alumnus. 
and he's humiliated and embarrassed that the school didn't do anything. He's ashamed, as he describes it. I did things in high school, Greg, I'm ashamed of, e.g. throwing snowballs at a streetcar because I didn't assess the potential consequences and got caught up with the hurt. I can empathize to a degree with teenage boys doing dumb things, but this is on another level. No doubt the victim was begging them to stop and they saw the terror in his eyes. I don't know what the perfect punishment is either, but two to three months in a detention center would feel a bit more like justice being served for the victim and his family. He wrote, that's what's especially terrible, the degree of public humiliation. These people who did this to him are celebrating with their families tonight. And I get what he's saying. They're celebrating that the, the outcome and the sentencing and the judgment isn't worse. Meanwhile, the victim and his family are fighting tears uh, and rage. And I felt the same way. Imagine running into those kids who did that again. Imagine seeing them and just knowing that they, in essence, got away with it. They might feel terrible. They might never do something as awful again. Fine, but they did. And this is where I do not draw the line with second chances. And before I get to calls, let me give you a parallel. 416-870-6400 is the phone number, by the way. You may not follow the NFL, or you may, but the Raiders have a wide receiver named Henry Ruggs. He just got drafted two years ago. He faces two felony charges in a fatal car crash. He got released from the hospital, but he's in Las Vegas and there's multiple felony charges because a woman's dead and his female passenger is injured. And clearly the cops believe that he was drinking. He showed signs of impairment, police said. Ruggs is 22 years of age. He will probably never play in the NFL again. And if he does, it'll be a few years from now. They won't take it easy on him. Okay, he faces a sentence of between two and 20 years and obviously could face a civil suit that could be in the millions. Henry Ruggs made a decision to drink and drive. That's not a mistake. We've talked about that far that so far. I don't buy into mistakes. Um, a, a mistake can lead to a second chance. Absolutely. A mistake could be I slept in. I'm late for the show. A mistake could be I can't find my phone or I lost my phone. My son lost his phone once. I considered it a mistake, not a pattern of behavior. If he threw his phone and hit some and hit a girl in the face with it and she goes to the hospital, that's not a mistake. So you see the parallel I'm drawing here. Henry Ruggs will go to prison at age 22 for something he didn't mean to do. And yes, a woman is dead. No one's dead in the St. Mike situation. But where was the intent? Where was the element of cruelty for Henry Ruggs? It's non-existent. Non-existent. That's, he doesn't intend to get behind the wheel and kill somebody. These boys intended to do everything they did to this boy that they assaulted. So why is a 22-year-old man going to prison, probably for quite a long time, and five 17, 18-year-old boys aren't going at all? And as I said, take something away that matters to these boys. If you don't want a long prison sentence, and I think three months would have been reasonable, 90 days would have been reasonable. I really do. I would have sent all of these kids to prison. I don't believe that they made a mistake. I think they made a conscious decision to humiliate, violate, and assault one of their classmates. I don't know how you could argue otherwise. Let's get to the phones on this. They're lit. Everybody wants to talk about it. Dave, you're on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Dave, thank you for the phone call. Go ahead. Yes, uh, Greg. I would have liked to see them put in a regional detention center for three months, not a group home or a youth detention center. Um, 
And there is a provision in our wonderful Young Offenders Act. They can be tried as adults. Maybe they should have. Um, so, yeah, they, they just, um, yeah, I think they got off easy, but, you know, they have money and expensive lawyers. Uh, this is the justice system we have everywhere. It's, it's lousy. And every time, every time a federal election comes around, I think, are we going to fix this? Or we just had one. We won't. I know we didn't want it. Some of us didn't want the federal election, but we never talk about fixing this. We never talk about it. We don't talk about sentence for, um, you know, people like a Graham James. We don't talk about it for drunk drivers like Marco Muzo, who's out on the streets now after destroying a family in an extreme uh, case of DUI. Okay, we don't talk about it. And we don't we, we don't get our politicians to get it together and change things. We want to change everything else, but not this somehow. Chris, you're on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Chris, go ahead. Good morning. How are you? Great. Thank you. I just want to say that those kids didn't get what they should have. Uh, there's initiations when I played junior years ago, you know, mm-hmm. they'd shake their eyebrows or they'd make you carry the bags or you'd have to buy the, you know, the, the senior guys in the team, you know, meals and stuff like that. But those kids got away with it, man. Put them in a real jail with a free a few real boys and let them see exactly how things go. I'm all for it. I have no empathy whatsoever for for what they might go through in 90 days of jail. If we're ever going to disincentivize this behavior, you have to have sentences that echo the behavior. And I saw like there's you know I, like I would disagree with there's a there's a, uh, um, a you know basically an op-ed in the Star this morning. St. Mike's sexual assaults, other high-profile cases show the need to change sports culture. Don't lay this at the doorstep of sports culture. Don't lay this at the doorstep of um, of boys being boys, because that's exactly why this sentence is so light. Like it, you, it's it's a self-fulfilling prophecy at a certain point to give an excuse and go, well, the culture, well, the system. How about making individuals accountable for their own actions? How about we do that? Wouldn't that be better for everybody concerned? Because you're not going to change anything with three months probation. Marco, you're on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Go ahead, Marco. Hi, morning. How are you doing, man? Uh, this, this thing hit me so bad. It's unbelievable. Only in Canada these things have happened. These guys should have go to jail, find out what it's like for the real vice to play with the rear end. Uh, regards what they do with this kid to humiliate them. Then they would stop it. This is only the start of a criminal life for all four of them. Have a nice day. Bye. Thank you for the phone call. Let me keep moving. Brad, you're on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Go ahead, Brad. I am so fired up right now, I can't even breathe. Yeah. This is, no, I mean, I, 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 where the hell is common sense? And, and so I look at it, I break it down like this. If I was sitting in front of a judge, take all kids around that age, of all schools, of all sports, What's the percentage of boys that even consider thinking of doing something like that versus those who do? So those who choose to do that, they should go to jail and they should go to jail for more than 90 days. There should be a significant consequence to this action. This is like this is an excusable behavior as a human being to treat someone like this. Do they ever think about the victim? This victim's going to go through this probably the rest of their life. And I know there's people, let me ask you a question, Brad. I know there's people saying, well, you know, they probably feel a sense of remorse. I'm Tommy Lee Jones and the Fugitive. I don't care. I don't care about the remorse you feel and the reform you're going to do the rest of your life. 
I want an action. We're making people really accountable for their actions when they say things online. We're making people accountable for their actions when they say yeah. things in university classrooms. This this yeah. is like when people say words are violence, silence is violence. Check this kid out and, and see how he's doing. Violence is freaking violence. That's what well, it is. And, and again, back to my point, I agree a thousand percent, but it comes down to probability. It's so few people that are willing to do this to someone. There's something wrong with them. That's not normal behavior. Therefore, there's a consequence. There's a consequence. I don't have time to get to Marcy, but I don't. But Marcy, I appreciate your call because you say kids will maybe learn their lesson through probation. Do some, There's no community service attached to this at all. I find that remarkable. Would I have sent them to prison for, for 90 days? Yes, I would have. Would I also take away their driver's license for the next five years? Yes, I would. Well, Greg, it wasn't a driving crime. I don't care. Take away things that matter to them. We do it in every other consequence when there's a horrific action. Okay? You hit your kids. You're not seeing your kids. We don't just accept your apology. In a custody battle, if you can prove abuse or intent of abuse, that parent is, is you know, climbing uphill the rest of their existence. Take their passports away. Oh, you might like to go on a vacation with your rich parents. Too bad. It isn't going to happen in the next half decade. Three months probation. I'm horrified, and I'm as fired up as all the callers were. Kyle Beach in the Chicago Blackhawks, right? Kyle Beach had his interview a week ago tonight with Rick Westhead, uh, and we've been nonstop reacting to it. So has the NHL. Kevin Dayoff gave his first thoughts publicly yesterday. The Winnipeg Jets general manager, who was in essence exonerated um, for anything um, in terms of punishment, or responsibility or accountability. Uh, I've got thoughts on that in a little bit. Joining me to discuss, she's an assistant professor of kinesiology and health studies at Queens University, and she studied the hockey culture um, upside, you know, up and down. I would I would make the point, Dr. Courtney C two, uh, Dr. C two. It's great to have you on. Give me your read on on your initial viewing of the beach interview a week ago and the subsequent reaction to it. I appreciate that everybody was commending him for for his bravery, but that shouldn't have been necessary. Um, and that's the unfortunate part. So um, what's transpired after the fact is unfortunately um, what we have come to expect from the NHL, which is a lot of uh, legal talk, um, nothing of, of real substance. Um, so yeah, we had a, a really emotional touch point and, and we're kind of back to status quo really quickly. Um, so that's really unfortunate, I think. Yeah, I didn't love the NHL's response on uh, on Monday afternoon. And it's it's you know, I don't want to say it's tricky to judge because some of it may be tied up in legalese. But at the same time, you know, there's an element of of a there's two things to me. One is uh, a sense of compassion. I want to hear that. I, I you know, I heard the Blackhawks actions described by the NHL commissioner, Gary Bettman, as quote unquote inappropriate. And someone texted me during the show Tuesday and uh, not to be too graphic, but he said, he said, uh, um, inappropriate is farting in the swimming pool. It's not what the Blackhawks response was, which was negligent, which was harmful, which was cruel, which was, um, you know, again, borderline. We're, we're questioning even the legality of it, let alone the morality of it, Courtney. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're dealing with criminal issues. And I think that that's what sets this um, instance apart. A lot of other 
um, examples that we've had to deal with with Gary Bettman and the, and the league structure have been more about, you know, hockey and hockey governance. Um, although we could say that, you know, concussion protocols and things like that, player safety start to, to meld over into morality and, and other issues. But yeah, this is um, a potentially criminal act that happened, you know, by their own staff to their own um, inside inside personnel. So um, this definitely has, has struck a chord that is different. Hopefully it sets a new precedent, um, but we have yet to see any of that kind of reckoning. So we've used the word reckoning a lot in the media. Uh, we've used it a, a lot the last few years, um, but nothing has really changed. Courtney C2 is joining us on Toronto Today uh, from Queen's University. She's written extensively on uh, hockey and, and hockey culture. And, and, and you've written your doctoral research was specifically about South Asian experiences in hockey. Were those specifically to North America? I know the game has grown, you know, a lot more globally than, you know, when I was a kid, there were four or five European nations that were good at the sport and, and obviously Canada and the United States. It's branched out dramatically along the globe since then. Where did your doctoral research focus on? Yeah, it was definitely focused on South Asian hockey players, parents and coaches in the lower mainland of British Columbia. Um, but it also take, took me into places about learning about um, the Indian women's national hockey team and the Indian men's national hockey team. Um, so you're right about it being extremely global. It's it's starting to um, gain more international reach, uh, but we've got a long way to go to see any kind of international parity, that's for sure. We see, look, I think we've all, to be honest, I think we all could picture ourselves being in an athletic endeavor and at the highest level of sport, Courtney, being an outsider. Um, white players have experienced this when they've gone over to Japan to play baseball. That was well documented uh, in the 70s and 80s. African players have experienced this going to you know, England and France to play professional soccer, professional football. Hockey just feels harder to break through. I I've said it before. I've, I've loved the sport. The sport's given a lot to me, but I know, I know it feels more exclusive and non-inclusive than many, many other sports. Has that been what the research tells you? Has that been what the eye test tells you? Um, yeah, I get this question a lot. Is hockey worse than other sports? And I wouldn't say that it's necessarily worse because obviously we have similar scandals to talk about with USA Gymnastics and National Women's Soccer League. There are many examples out there. I think what is different about hockey is that it refuses to acknowledge um, the truth of a certain situations. So whether it is a lack of, of diversity, um, racist coaches and, and perhaps scouting practices that exist in the system. Um, so we just don't have the same accountability. And we're seeing this now with a discussion of, of Gary Bettman and, and, um, and coaches kind of just staying in the position or having the opportunity that having the door left open that they could come back. Whereas other associations, they cleaned house or they tried to clean house as best as they could because there was no more legitimacy within the governing structure. Um, so if we have the same house intact and we move a couple of pieces within the inside the house, um, that is the status quo of hockey. Has it gotten better in the last decade? Does this feel like a step back? I mean, again, th this incident happened 11 years ago, the subsequent cover up, not talking about it, no one being accountable of it. It's not great. But I have heard people, I wouldn't say defend either the league or the sport, but just say that's a lot less likely a scenario with how much we talk about things than it would have been 11 years ago. How do you view that? 
I think what's different is the pervasiveness of social media. I don't think necessarily the culture itself has willingly changed on its own. It's the fact that we have outlets like social media, like the Players Tribune, um, where players get to speak their truth without any gatekeepers in the way. Mm -hmm. So the labor aspect of it, um, the players are dragging associations into uh, a more modern um, work conditions that they would like. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's all that different, um, but I think that the, the challenges for the governing structure are different. Courtney C2 is our guest, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto, Toronto Today with Greg Brady. What would you have liked to heard? What's an ideal scenario? If you're if you're a senior aide to the NHL commissioner, to Gary Bettman, and you're like, Gary, this is how you get it right. I mean, this is how you win the news conference. We've got to make the best. And, and, and you know, not, I'm not just talking about words, but in terms of not just performative words, but actions themselves. What, what would you have advised the NHL to do on Monday in terms of addressing this? Well, I think that you're framing it of winning the news is, is an interesting way to yeah. put it because that's what the NHL tries to do a lot of the time is try to win the news as opposed to doing the right thing. Um, so I would have liked to hear a resignation. I would have liked to um, have seen a much larger penalty for the Chicago Blackhawks. I mean, $2 million was a slap on the wrist. Um, we've seen larger fines for, for hockey-related instances. Um, so, yeah, I think, again, it's going back to holding all of those people accountable and then they should no longer be in the game. I mean, with, if we look at USA Gymnastics as an example, they, they had four high-ranking officials change over within six months and they weren't even there when Larry Nasser um, was employed, but they're still um, head of the ship. And so if things are not going well underneath their supervision, they are not the right people to lead. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, we just haven't seen that ownership of high officials in the NHL realizing that everything that goes on under their guys, um, is their responsibility as well. Like, it's interesting you say that you're in a university environment. And I think a lot about, I, I covered college football for a, a lot of my years living in Michigan. So I know and most people do know uh, what it means to the culture, what it means to a campus. So when I see what happened at Penn State, um, I think, could we have a similar, you know, reckoning and and measure of accountability here? And I think we should demand that of professional sports. It doesn't matter that it's not a, a you know, a college environment. It's still this is a 21 year old man saying um, this is how I felt. This is what I lived with. This is the, you know, this is my truth coming out now. And I told my truth earlier in private circumstances and I either wasn't believed or, or the organization and, and the machinery of it didn't make anybody accountable for it. But when I saw the Penn state thing, I think when that first came out and, and you heard about like the idea of them firing Joe Paterno, and the idea of of taking major, major sanctions and basically laying themselves down on the sword and saying, we got it wrong. Yeah. I didn't see that coming when that scandal started. I don't we're still early days in this Blackhawks thing. Do you think more could happen here? I'm certainly hopeful that more can happen. Um, I'm skeptical that we will see those kinds of uh, large sweeping changes. But um, yeah, once your leadership is in question and the company that you keep is in question, um, how are you supposed to? realistically bring in recruits and fans to this sport. Um, where my work comes from is the corner of where are the people that we're losing? Who are the people that go to the rink and have a bad time and never come back to the game? Um, those are the people that I think we need to be fighting for as opposed to those who have very 
been very fortunate and had good experiences in the game. We have not designed the game of hockey so that people have the most beneficial experience possible because we put the mechanisms in place to make sure that that happens. That's Courtney C2 from Queens University. Some interesting thoughts there, uh, and we thank her for them. Um, watching this COP26 in uh, the Climate Summit in uh, Scotland, uh, you know, I think we've moved past some of the early distractions. Wolf Blitzer not knowing what city he was in, some of the accommodations for um, a large uh, a large variety of not just world leaders, but experts uh, in the field. Um, and I think we're getting down to better business now. Um, and I think things like this are going to be important. I got a lot of thoughts on it. Our guest does as well. Uh, she is Julia Levin, Senior Climate and Energy Program Manager at Environmental Defense. Julia, it's great to have you on. I'm a fan of your work. Thanks for making the time for me and our list. Thanks for inviting me onto your show. Of course. Uh, what are your observations early days? Um, and, and the media coverage matters in this context, doesn't it? We'd, we we want to be talking about the actual issues and the importance, not just short term, obviously, but long term in, in what everyone is referencing as uh, a really ambitious decade. The next 10 years are critical and vital. Yeah, exactly. And for sure, the media coverage really matters. Um, and and. So does having kind of a high-level vision of what needs to be accomplished at this at this UN climate conference at the COP26. Mm-hmm. And the goal of this COP is really to keep 1.5 degrees within reach. 1.5 degrees limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees is the promise that countries made when they signed the Paris Agreement in 2015. That's because scientists told us that that's a safer threshold. There is no safe when it comes to rising temperatures, as we've seen over the last summer especially, um, but it's that safer limit beyond which we go into catastrophic areas of, of, of warming. And so that's really the goal of COP, to keep 1.5 within reach. And that's critically important um, because right now, if we, if we add up all the plans that have been submitted by countries so far, that puts us on track for 2.7 degrees of warming, and that's a devastating level of warming. Yeah, it's too much. Now, I notice there's. I, I always worry about the, um, you know, the bad actors. None of none of us are innocents, and none of our leaders are innocents in terms of uh, pushing us in the right direction. But it does seem like when I see that a country like Brazil, uh, that that has Bolsonaro running their country, signing a def, uh, you know, a, a, a pledge to end and reverse deforestation. I guess I'm encouraged by it because his attitude a year and a half ago seemed to be, that's our rainforest. You won't tell us what to do with it. But at the same time, we don't have China at these particular proceedings. And I know that's irked a lot of people thinking, what can I do in my own backyard in, in tiny Canada, even with 36 million people, if India and China don't get on board, right? I mean, definitely tackling the climate crisis is uh, all hands on deck moment. We need all countries around the world to do their fair share um, to tackle the climate crisis. But the, the largest culpability does rest with countries like Canada that have historically, for the last 100 years, been a top 10 emitter, despite our tiny population size. We have an outsized role in, in tackling the climate crisis. And so far, we haven't seen real leadership coming from Canada. We continue to have the worst climate record in the, in the G7. Our emissions have gone up more than any other G7 country since the Paris Agreement was signed. We provide more money, more public money to fossil fuel companies than any other country in the G20. Um, and, and we continue, while we set climate targets and we talk about our climate plans, we continue to support expansion of the oil and gas sector. And that is fundamentally incompatible with, uh, with a safe future. 
Yeah, us, us wanting a pipeline, uh, the keystone, and then one of Joe Biden's first acts being to shut it down spoke almost to the extent that the United States, uh, with all its polarization, is still willing to take a stand on something like that that, that we were, just weren't ready to last January, February. And our, we've seen our federal government do the opposite thing. They yeah. saw the pipeline that would allow the expansion of oil and gas. Uh, and we know what causes the climate crisis. It's burning and digging up and burning fossil fuels. So we know in order to, to tackle the climate crisis, and that means to avoid catastrophic levels of warming, save millions of lives, create a better society for all of us, we need to put in place plans now about how we're going to transition over the next two decades away from oil and gas. But so far, we haven't seen um, any of those plans being put forth by, mm. by countries like Canada. But we are going to see at COP next week some countries putting forward um, a, new, a new diplomatic initiative, a new alliance that, that will bring those countries together that have started to do that work about transitioning away from oil and gas. Julia Levin joining us, Senior Climate and Energy Program Manager at Environmental Defense. I'm going to give you that website uh, as we leave as well. Um, but we got a few minutes left. I want to ask you about the practicality of in the well, I wouldn't say in the midst of a pandemic, because I think we're almost through it. I, I, I bristle when people say, well, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We better not be. Um, <laughs> but either way, either way. Has this accelerated uh, in your mind? I think there's a this is a great debate point, and I've had it with a few people. Have we accelerated our urgency when it comes to climate, or has the pandemic made us lose our focus about the climate? There are changes, clearly things like people working from home, um, not being on the roads as much, a four-day work week, that, that going forward should help wean us off you know fossil fuels etc cetera, etc cetera. but the pandemic itself has made people think um i i only got time for one crisis in my life right now how do you view it yeah i think there's a couple ways to to view it on the one hand um one thing that the pandemic and the pandemic response has shown us is how quickly governments can act when mm. when we're in an emergency so i think there's really important learnings about what we do as emergency response, and that includes the way we communicate about emergencies, the kinds of policies we put in place. So there's really important learnings that we can translate to the climate emergency that we're in. And though, and though um, you know, especially the first year of, of the pandemic, we, that was obviously occupying everyone's minds. I think the devastating um, disasters over the summer, both here in Canada and abroad, have really wakened up society to the scale of the threat and, and this shifting our perspective on climate as a, as a problem of tomorrow to a crisis of today. Unfortunately, that's what it sometimes takes, the kind of disasters we've seen. I mean, it would have been ideal if we could have started tackling this issue 30 years ago instead of waiting till, till mm. the moment we're, on, we're in today. But we've seen that even with mm. the election and, and people across Canada voting for for parties with ambitious climate plans um, and a government that now has a new mandate and a new level of accountability to act much more, much more boldly yeah. than they, than they have been before. I got only 40 seconds. How much is private money going to factor in here? I don't think we should be sneering at Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. If they say I'm going to donate this many hundred million or this many billion towards the environment. Um, we need to take that. This isn't just going to be government created private funding to help the environment is vital is it not yes completely private private sector private financial capital that is a key part this is going to be a very expensive transition 
like I said, we need all hands on deck, and that includes the financial sector. But um, the truth is, you know, Mark Carney was there today to launch a new alliance, but the truth is that banks and other private financial institutions continue to spend trillions of dollars supporting oil and gas. So net zero targets mean nothing from, from banks if they, if they aren't accompanied with um, an end to the, to the amount of support, the trillions of dollars that they are providing to fossil fuels. Yeah. And governments have a role to play in, in regulating the financial sector as well. So we need that. Um, we need we need private finance on board, but they won't do it on their own. Yeah. All hands on deck is where it goes. It's uh, that's it. That's exactly been our way out of the pandemic is is not just looking out for number one, but all the numbers below it. Uh, Julie Levin has been our guest environmentaldefense.ca. You can go and find out much, much more about what they do. It's a pleasure having you on. I hope we get to chat again. Thanks so much. Vaccines are in plentiful possession right now. They've started vaccinating American kids and started last night, as a matter of fact. And I said this three weeks ago, and and it, it is ringing true. I hope it is here. Pediatricians offices, doctors offices, that's the place to go. Mass vaccination clinics for five, six, seven year olds. I do think you're going to get some skepticism from parents. I want to play this clip as well and then bring Sabina Vower Miller on uh, to react to it. Dr. Paul Offit is with the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's on the FDA vaccine advisory board. So he approved the vaccination and he did say all kids should be vaccinated as long as a safe vaccine is available. And it now is. But he makes a point that I absolutely endorse and agree with. You better tell parents You better play this game the right way and tell parents, if you want some good uptake, that this is about them and it's about their household and it's about their street and their school, making them be a statistic. So, you know, the city of Toronto can reach 90 percent and John Tory can say, hey, we got to 90 percent or Christine Elliott can say, yeah, we got to 90 percent. That's not going to work. You're going to sell people back the other way and we've got to provide incentives. We've seen this documented. You got to provide incentives for vaccination or people will say, why would I do this? There may be parents out there that think, hey, my six-year-old, perfectly healthy, perfectly safe. I'm not worried about it. But you better tell them that this is about them and their responsibility for their own household, not a stat-based uh, you know, addition that helps pump the numbers up. Here's what Dr. Offit said. I, I can't imagine that that uh, I would say to a parent, you know, that um, it's important for you to vaccinate your child to protect people who are older. Uh, James Hilgrith brought that up yesterday as as a, a reason why we shouldn't, you know, necessarily say that we that use we shouldn't use that as a reason for why to vaccinate the five to eleven year old children shouldn't be a shield for their their parents or their grandparents was what he said, and and I they are I mean they are in fact that because they can spread the virus. But I think you just can never make the societal argument to a parent for why they should vaccinate their children. Vaccinate your child because it's for the greater good. I don't think that parent ever sees it that way. They'll see it as, does this benefit my child? Am I protecting my child against getting an illness? I'm not just trying to protect others. That's exactly it. That's exactly right. And now you're seeing parents say, oh, well, my kid can't go into this building, go into a restaurant 12 plus without being vaccinated. I guess I'll do it. I've got kids on my kids soccer team that are now getting vaccinated because they can't play their indoor season outdoors was fine in the summer but they've got to do that now pharmacologist sabina vora miller kind enough to join us as she does every week what do you make of that i mean we all have we'll have our individual reasons and i can think about the greater good and you can think about the greater good but that's a big ask of parents who are just only ever going to put their kid first right 
Absolutely. So, I mean, when you look at uh, the reasons for for vaccinating um, and then you look at what our role is as parents, I mean, I speak as a mother of a little one as well, right? And so we're balancing putting um, our children first, being responsible for the health and well-being of our children versus our responsibility as being citizens of the world. Um, but it's, 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 it's a very, um, you know, when it comes down to being a parent, uh, every parent, including myself, we will put the safety of our children first because that really is our responsibility. And so I completely agree with Dr. Offit here that we have to emphasize the personal health benefits to getting vaccinated. And I thought the CDC yesterday did such an incredible job yeah. of explaining exactly what the benefits are you know, for the COVID-19 vaccines. And I especially love how they put COVID into context um, compared to many other vaccine-preventable diseases that we routinely vaccinate our children for. Yeah, you, you you nailed it. And you and I are in lockstep on this saying what they said yesterday and, and laying out what the doctor laid out in that clip is exactly the way to do it. What isn't the way to do it is, well, how are you going to get to 90 percent? Well, a bunch of kids are going to step up and get vaccinated. No, no, no. Your kid, no parent wants their kid used as a statistic. It's all about. And this is also like there's an emotional component to this as a parent too, beyond the mm-hmm. practical worldview. But emotions do matter. If this creates confidence in the kid itself, if it creates confidence in the household or grandparents to, uh, you know, see a fully vaccinated family, um, then then I'm all for it because the, we, we live our lives often based on emotion and reaction to emotion. Absolutely. And I mean, here's the thing. I'll be vaccinating my toddler because I actually believe in the fact that it protects him. And that is my my key priority as a parent. I mean, I think the statistics, you know, with, you know, with respect to how well we're doing on, in vaccinating um, our community is, is important. But that's not the reason why I will be vaccinating my child. I'll be vaccinating my child because I know it's going to protect him. It's going to protect his time with his grandparent. It's going to protect his time in school. It's going to protect his time with his friends. All of these things that actually make a huge difference in his life. That's mm-hmm. the reason why I'll be vaccinating my child. Let, let me read into that comment because I think that's significant. It's it's not you don't fear per se, per se, and, and you know the data as well as I do. You don't per se fear a bad outcome for him, but it's everything around him. Like you said, positive cases in school means kids come back from daycare. Kids come home from classrooms. Grandparents feel more confident around fully vaccinated. You'll be able to go more and do go more places and do more things when he's vaccinated. Am I reading that right? Exactly. And so we can actually allow children to finally get back to doing the things that they love and they miss that they just haven't had an opportunity to do over the last mm-hmm. um, you know, year and a half plus. But I mean, like you said, like this less disruption to school. I mean, the number of times you've seen that school outbreaks are are resulting in children being sent home for two weeks. I mean, we wouldn't need to have any of that. You know, we can actually get back to doing extracurricular activities that children are really missing out on in you know the last year and a half. Um, and I think also it's really important once again to remember here that we have no idea to predict which children are actually going to suffer from severe illness of COVID, which child, which child is going to have a long COVID, like is going to have long COVID. We don't have any idea to predict which child is going to have Miss C. Um, these are all very unpredictable given that, you know, nearly 30 or 40% of children who have severe illness are p- children who have absolutely zero underlying um, health reasons. Yeah. Um, and so, again, it's like protecting them, protecting their activities, protecting their lives, protecting the things that they love doing. 
um, and protecting the ability of them to go hug their grandparents over the holidays, right? Massively so, yeah. I, I want to get a booster question in with you, but want to ask one more on this. I I do think, and, and as that as that clip laid out, I would have mandated vaccines for 12 to 17-year-olds. I would have done that. I would not be doing it with 5 to 11-year-olds. So I'm worried that, say, the city of Toronto, for example, had this backwards. They never pushed for 12 to 17s. And now we're seeing that 12 to 17s, if they want to go in restaurants, play in sports leagues, have a part-time job, they do need to get vaccinated. I, I don't know why we didn't see that, you know, <laughs> the train coming down the tracks. Um, do, do you... I'm, I'm making it a little bit of a I'm making you all of a sudden mayor, premier and prime minister. But would you have done it the way I would have done it or, or do you view it on the opposite side? OK, so I mean, the way I would look at this is very in a very logical way. So here, this is probably the, the, the position where I would remove emotions from. But if you actually look at, um, you know, comparatively with respect to COVID, the number of children that have died from COVID versus the number of children who have died from other really dangerous viruses and bacteria that we routinely vaccinate for, for instance, men- meningococcal disease, the, the bacteria that causes meningococcal disease, or rubella, which is a virus that causes rubella. Um, If you look at the number of kids who've died due to COVID, um, it far exceeds children who have died from either these two diseases before a vaccine was introduced. And we mandate both of those vaccines for children if they want to attend school. So, you know, I mean, if you look at it in a purely logical way, why are we not doing that for COVID? It makes absolute sense to do it given the burden of illness that COVID carries in pediatric populations. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I want to get in uh, the booster uh, question. I got about, I got under a minute, um, but are you expecting any surprises today? This will just be, let's, let's get over seventies done. Let's get the AstraZeneca population who stepped up and did the right thing. It was better than getting nothing at the time. And it's still been a fairly effective vaccine. Uh, But, but those people need a boost more than the people with the MRNA vaccines. Are you expecting that today? Yeah, I think I, I, we would see exactly what NACI has outlined. There might be small differences with respect to timing for a couple of different criteria that I'm, I'm anticipating Ontario would call. But other than that, I think we will, for the most part, stay, stick true with what NACI has recommended for the key priority populations to get vaccinated, to get boosters. Mm. Sabina, thanks very much. I always enjoy our visits and you bring a lot of insight to our listeners. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me. All right, time for What Happened When. Shiva Siddiqui is with us, our producer extraordinaire, Loretta Milnovich as well. And uh, Dave Bradley, I'm seeing you guys in the newsroom post these uh, G and G2 road test things. You're giving me some PTSD. <laughs> I get this uh, guy on Twitter saying, were you more nervous taking your driver's test three years ago for to get your G? Because uh, I was given a G2 when I first moved back here. When you're 16, way more nervous when you're in your 40s. Yeah, It's embarrassing, the idea that I would come home and flunk a- <laughs> after 30 years of really good driving and only several mishaps and and you know maybe two dozen tickets i i'm i'm really good i think i'm dustin hoffman i'm an excellent driver and i shouldn't have to prove it dave i don't know what would happen if i had to prove it again actually i i'm thinking that i it it would be tough it would be definitely nerve-wracking and when you're sheba when you're 16 you don't know what you don't know so you don't even know you're gonna pass i i mean there were definitely people that flunked the first time so when i did my road test I did a terrible job backing into the spot. The guy's like, give it another go. Then he gives me a third chance, and then he gave me the license. So I didn't think that was going to happen because this guy was just not talking to me the entire time. They want to intimidate you, right? 
But how cool did you feel walking into school the next day saying, yeah, I got my license on the first try? Amazing. And in yeah. December, too. Like, our kid turns 16 in late January. We don't even want him to take the road test, though, till there's, like, no snow on the roads. I don't want him out there driver's ed until, like, April or so. So we got to delay that. But I lived out in the country, so we were de- desperate. Desperate to get it. I bet you Loretta had the best driver's test out of all of us, didn't you? Oh, 100%. Not. <laughs> I took mine in the winter, and I had to parallel park between two snow banks. That was fun. Yeah. And you and Sheba, again, can probably talk your way out of tickets when you get stopped. Oh, come Dave on, and I have you nothing. and Sheba. Come the sexism on, come in this on. society, uh, really? Dave, it's honestly, when are you and I going to catch a break? I don't know. I bat my lashes. and I That's get it. Yeah, exactly. Run like, your finger through your hair. I do that. Right. I do that, too. What little hair I have. That's right. No, uh, I actually come from a family. A lot of family members of my family are police officers, so they've taught me to say, if you when you, when you get pulled, you're just be like, I sh- officer, I should know better. I come from a family of police officers. No! Yeah, yeah. And then, the, then that conversation starts, and they let me go. Uh, police privilege. That's what that is. Cop <laughs> privilege. What happened when? Uh, this date, speaking of, um, the first auto show ever, I see. Yeah, 1900 was the first ever auto show held in New York at Madison Square Garden. Of course, uh, ever since, Detroit has been the mecca for auto shows in North America. That's where a lot of the new models have been released, for sure. But, uh, yeah, they're, they've been popular since then. Do you get gacked up for these big time? I do. I yeah, mean, it's it, okay. For the big shows, for the little shows. Like, I'll, I'll see a show and shine in a parking lot, and I'm like, ooh, what's going on over there? So, yeah, I go to all of them. Cla- like, it's more classic stuff, or, or you like seeing brand new stuff? Everything. New, te- new tech. Every- Everything. Yeah, yeah, I don't have a favorite. and I, I just like cars. I'm, I'm that guy. When is the midlife crisis car coming? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> my dad bought an, uh, an RX-7, like, without telling, basically oh, wow. kind of without telling my mom yeah. at a certain point in time. See, I, I have a problem. We have one parking spot at home. So, but but I already have a race car, and my wife is like, "You already have a race car, so you can't really get them in life." What's your race car? car? Wait, I, I drive. It's called an Outlaw Midget. It's an open wheel race car. We race on oval tracks. Oh, that's fun, Sheba. We want to see it in the chorus parking lot at some point. I keep saying <laughs> yes, that. If you don't want to do. do winter driving with it, that's fine. It's but we better loud. see it by April. All of a sudden, you'll see Dave doing donuts. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I would. Yeah. Driving right through the, the actual uh, the 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 uh, the post that keeps you out. So you don't. You're not buzzing. Anyway. You could almost go right underneath it, actually. Oh, oh, that's big. Yeah, Yeah, there you go. Uh, Speaking of Detroit, 1930, that's the Detroit-Windsor Tunnel opening day. First vehicular tunnel between foreign countries open on this day, 1930. Now, I know people that are sort of claustrophobic that don't like the tunnel, but I don't like sitting high on a a bridge. Like, if there's big traffic on that Ambassador Bridge or or even the Peace Bridge going across to, to Buffalo, I don't like being... You can I'm feel the, the wind you sometimes, yeah. you know? Yeah, I don't like that feeling. Big trucks go by, it bounces just a little bit. Yeah. No, I think it's fun. I think it's cool. It's I hate the tunnels. <laughs> like the New York tunnels, oh, I, I feel claustrophobic in them. Uh, the coolest thing ever is going England to France, and it's a Dover to Calais tunnel where you park your car, and it's it's the tunnel. So you go under the English Channel, and you just sit in your car. I've done that, yes. Amazing, eh? Yes. Great. You can buy a bag of chips and a... <laughs> <laughs> and, a, and a cool soda or an alcoholic beverage and just sit there and wait it out. That's fantastic. Yeah. On this day, 1978, that's when Different Strokes premiered on TV. Yeah, I uh, I love this. I remember watching this a lot uh, when I'd be homesick from school. I think it was on at 11 in the morning, and then it was on Friday, big Friday night, Dukes of Hazard. Yeah. was on Fridays. This was on The Facts of Life. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Great show. Blair great, and all Trudy. All these great shows. Yeah. 
because you talk about Mr. D. Yeah, yeah. And I thought Todd Bridges was the uh, just the coolest kid. I'm like, I, I want that kid to be my friend. Um, <laughs> it turned out later through various, you know, break-ins and, and, you know, episodes of the law. Maybe that wouldn't have been a good friend to have, but whatever. He would have led you down the wrong path. I, <laughs> I wanted Willis Jackson to be my friend at a certain point in time. <laughs> Love that show. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Keeper, definitely. And, and Alan Thicke, you hear him here. He's singing on this. He wrote the song and is singing on what? it. What? That's right. I didn't know that one. He and his wife at the time, one of, I think there were several at some point, but Gloria Loring, his (laughs) wife, they wrote the song together. And they wrote the Facts of Life. That's a trivia question. On this date, 1995, that's the first Toronto Raptors game was held at the Sky Dome. They actually beat the New Jersey Nets, 94 to 79. And they beat the Bulls later that year. Those are the only two probably memorable things about a a long Raptors season at Sky Dome. It was a horrible environment. It was very tough. I went that fall to see them play Phoenix and Charles Barkley, and it was not... uh, yeah, much better when you moved into the AC. Well, Maple Leaf Gardens, they moved into first and played some games there. Yeah, that's true. And finally, on this day, 1984, Billy Ocean's Caribbean Queen went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Oh, listen, let's get this on. Let's get going here. Let's go. This is, yeah, unlike yesterday, where, you know, this is just a, uh, uh, you know, we had Adele, the stalker song, and that, uh, the obsessive <laughs> Shiva, that behavior that, there were several charges pending based on Adele's behavior in that song yesterday. This is just, this is just plain love and yeah, lust. This is a great song. It's great, great. Yeah, I don't know if the Caribbean Queen again returned his affections, but this is what music is about. I don't know if she but felt the just, same. You just put it out there. I just. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, no more love on the run, Dave. You and I have been there. The love on the run is just, you know, you're you're avoiding the cops and and all that love on the run. It was. <laughs> It was killing guys like you and me. Thank God we settled down. Exactly. And Billy Ocean did the same. Hey, appreciate you checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Really awesome of you to do just that. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are available. Apple, probably the easiest place to get us. So if you're finding us some other way, subscribe to us there and it'll be downloaded to your phone every day. We're back with a live show tomorrow on Thursday, November the 4th, as we cruise towards the weekend. Hope you can join us between 530 and 9.